Thank you for joining us for another lesson from God's Word. Anytime you're in Huntsville, we hope you'll come be part of our worship. The West Huntsville Church of Christ at Providence is located at 1519 Old Monrovia Road Northwest, Huntsville, Alabama, 35806. We hope you'll enjoy this lesson brought to us by Glenn Colley. Scripture reading this evening will be from Luke chapter 15, verses 1 through 7. And I'll be reading from the New King James Version. Then all the tax collectors and the sinners drew near to him to hear him. And the Pharisees and scribes complained, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So spoke them a parable, saying, What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he loses one of them, does not leave the ninety and nine in the wilderness and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? And when he found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I say to you that likewise there will be no joy in heaven over one sinner. There will be more joy in sin in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 just persons who need no repentance. You may be seated. It is wonderful to see you here tonight, and if you are watching via live stream, it's good to have you too. Tonight we're going to do questions and answers. Let's begin. This one was an interesting question that I've never heard before, and um, it was asked me this morning. In fact, the the sister who came to me said, uh, can I just tell you this one and don't write it down? Well, sure. And so the question is this. She and some of her friends or coworkers apparently have been having this discussion. Was Jesus a Christian? Absolutely not. That's the answer. He was not a Christian. And uh, the funny thing about that question is, I'm sure that when you first hear it, you know, you think, well, if I say he wasn't a Christian, doesn't that mean that somehow it sheds a negative light on on Jesus or on Christianity or something? And I'm sure that's how the discussion probably went. But the answer is, he was not a Christian. Remember the definition of a Christian. Acts chapter 11 and verse 26. The disciples were called Christians first in Antioch. Who are Christians? Disciples of Christ. What what does disciple mean? What means a student or a follower? Jesus can't be a follower of himself. And so he was not a Christian. He was not a disciple of himself. And um, it's an interesting, kind of an amusing question to me. But the answer is, is no. Next, if someone who has sinned against us is unrepentant, their behavior does not change and or they refuse to apologize are we still required to forgive those actions? I, I preached a sermon on this subject, I, I don't know when, several months ago maybe, and uh, you can look up the archive if you like and you could listen to a whole lesson on this. I, I believe the answer to the question is no. In Acts 17 and verse 3, we read, If your brother sins against you, rebuke him. And if he repent, forgive him. That's an interesting passage. You see Jesus on the cross, and Father, he says, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Did Jesus, did God forgive the sins of those people who crucified Jesus? The answer is, yes, he certainly extended forgiveness to them. When? 
Acts chapter 2, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins. You read Peter's sermon, and he identified those people as the ones who had crucified Jesus. So um, forgiveness is, is a, a, a word that means something. It's not merely that I still love you even though you did this. Of course we love them. Uh, but, but forgiveness is, uh, is something that, that involves repentance. It involves a turning around. And it seems to me that it would be counterproductive for us to forgive something that God wouldn't forgive. So I think we need to be careful about using the word. The answer is that, that if someone sins against us and we approach them and we love them and we encourage that we can fix this, let's fix this. And, and the person is unwilling to do that. I would, I would say that a better terminology would be that we can let it go. When you've done everything that you know how to do, let it go. And, uh, the person, make sure the person knows that you love them and, and you're, you're open to more conversation about this, but you can't force someone to, to repent. Of course, if the person is a member of the same congregation as you, then you could have Matthew 18 to discuss also. Next, the Septuagint was the common Bible of Jesus, of Jesus' day, and he quoted from it. Why are all of the books in it not part of our English Old Testament today? It's an interesting question. The Septuagint, sometimes in Roman numerals 70, because about 72 men translated the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament. Um, the, the Septuagint is a Greek translation of the books of the Old Testament. That's what it is. But there isn't actually a, a book that's the Septuagint. Uh, if you have a, you say, well, I've got one at home. It's the Septuagint. Well, yeah, but what that is, is a collection of, of different writings of different men over about 200 years who translated the Hebrew Bible uh, into Greek, Koine Greek. And so what you have is eclectic. It's, it's a kind of a a combination of different writers who wrote. So there's nothing wrong with the Septuagint. Jesus quoted from the Septuagint about 90 times in the New Testament, in the Gospel accounts. So it wasn't a bad thing, but and that's what they spoke. They spoke Koine Greek. So it was, it was a great tool, but that's what it is. It's, it's a Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. And that's the answer to the question. That's why we don't adhere to the Septuagint. It's a wide smorgasbord of, of translation. Next. Glenn, is, is cowardice a sin? This is an interesting question. Where is the line between turning the other cheek and sticking up for your faith? As faith and Christianity is under assault, do we fight back to save our families? I think that's a very good question. Uh, now, the first thing we have to do is to distinguish between the two because these two things are not the same. I mean, when you talk about turning the other cheek, you're, you're in Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 38. And Jesus said, you've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you to not resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on your right cheek Turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. And whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. 
Give to him who asks you and from him who wants to borrow from you, turn not away. And so this idea about slapping you on your right cheek and turn, turn to him the other one is, is not a hard law. It's a principle. And I know that's true because in John chapter 18 and verse 22, when Jesus was being tried at the very beginning, when he had said some of these things, the officers who stood by struck Jesus with the palm of his hand, or that is one of the officers, struck him with the palm of his hand saying, do you answer the high priest like that? And Jesus answered, if I've spoken evil, bear witness of the evil. But if, if well, why do you strike me? Did Jesus contradict his own teaching? The answer is no, of course not. But what you have is general principle. It's the principle that you find in Romans chapter 12 when you talk about how to treat your enemies. If your enemy hunger, you know how that goes, right? If your enemy hunger, feed him. If he thirst, give him drink. And in so doing, you'll heap coals of fire on his head. Christians are different. I mean, well, this is revolutionary teaching. What do you, how do you treat your enemy? And what, you, what do you do if you really want to hurt your enemy? <laughs> well, you feed him if he's hungry and you give him something to drink if he's thirsty. And if your enemy curses, you don't curse him back. But there's the principle. You, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't take this to a, a ridiculous conclusion. Wayne Jackson writes about this, and I always admired his work. He said, these are general principles of conciliation. They're not to be pressed to the point of absurdity. That is, if someone takes your automobile, give him your house also. He was a good man. He's gone now. He was a good man. Right. So, so the first thing that I want you to see is that the, the general principle of turn the, the other cheek is, is designed to be a, a broad conciliatory principle about how we get along with people. And just because somebody mis- mistreats you as a Christian doesn't mean that you're going to mistreat them back. You, you are careful about that, and we treat enemies differently. But now the second part of this is, is about when do we stand up and, and when do we, we dig in our heels? And the answer is that when you're talking about defending the things of God, the principles of Christ, we, we must, we must be bold. Revelation chapter 21 and verse 8 includes people who will not go to heaven. And one of them is the fearful. And the fearful are the cowardly. We sing sometimes, I'm not ashamed to own my Lord nor to defend his cause. Is that true about you and me? It, it, it would do us no good. I, I had a, an elder one time years ago say to me, well, you know, uh, we ought to teach people the gospel and how to be saved. And if necessary, use words. Well, that's just absurdity right there. I mean, you could really be nice to them, but you could show them Christianity in your example. But it's going to take words to teach them the gospel, right? And sometimes we could be so very kind to people, but we're not, going to, we're not going to ever cross any lines of actually teaching them about Jesus or the things of Jesus. But that's not how this is written. The New Testament is much bolder than that. As a matter of fact, when you think about the early church and the apostles, it'll take your breath away. The degree to which they were, they were bold and what they did. Acts chapter 7, verse 27, Peter and John healed the lame man, and then they were brought up on charges. And when they brought them, they set them before the council. And the high priest asked them, saying, did we not strictly command you not to teach in this name? Ladies and gentlemen, the name is Jesus. The name is Jesus. 
And look, you filled Jerusalem with your doctrine. Now, now what does that do to you, huh? What is, how does that feel to you? We told you not to do this, and now look what you've done. You've filled Jerusalem with your doctrine. How do you respond to that in your soul? They said, and intend to bring this man's blood on us. Well, there's a reason for that. And the fact is, their, their hands were red. Here was Peter's response. Listen closely. They said, we ought to obey God rather than men. Now, there's boldness there. And, and Christians, that's, don't, don't ever be embarrassed or ashamed to say, now, I'm a Christian. I, I try to find opportunities and conversations to reference God, even if it's in a small way, but whatever way. If sometimes somebody, you'll be at the post office and, and somebody will say something to you that can or, or has a direct um, relationship to religious matters. That's a great opportunity. Just speak, just just speak. Answer and respond. And maybe, maybe well, you know, the Bible says over in Acts chapter 7, mm-hmm, and just, just, we're going to learn more about that in our evangelism seminar. But the answer to the question is that uh, we're not militant people. Christians are not riotous people. When the riots were going on in the streets, there were questions about that. We, we aren't like that. But neither are we, are we soft. We, we're not threats to anybody. We're not threats to their safety. We're not going to shoot anybody. But, but we're not ashamed. We're not embarrassed about who we are. Uh, we serve King Jesus. We are his subjects. And he is our Lord. And that's how that must be. Next, why do we have evening services and why do we not partake the Lord's Supper twice? If no authority to take it twice, then what authority is there to offer it the second time? I think that's a fine question. Um, the first thing is that I'm glad that whoever wrote this, and I don't know who did, uh, is interested in New Testament authority. You and I must be interested in what the New Testament says. And the answer to the question, what should we or shouldn't we do in matters such as these, will always be, what does the Bible say about this? Now, I would suggest that the evening worship on Sunday is simply a continuation of our worship from the morning time. What we did was to take a break in the middle for some lunch and a nap. That's what we did, right? And, and, and then we, we continue in the evening. Uh, this is the Lord's Day. What did the early Christians do? Did they ever take a break in, in worship? We've been worshiping a couple of hours now. Let's take a 10-minute bathroom break. Did they ever do that? And then take up, well, that's, I, I would suggest to you that's what we do. It's still the Lord's Day, and we worship during the day, and we take a break in the middle. And so uh, I do not know any biblical principle, explicit or implicit, that would be violated by what we do about that. The instruction that we have in the New Testament for example, Acts 20 and verse 7, on the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul preached unto them, ready to depart on the morrow, continued his speech until midnight. And so I know that they assembled on, on the Lord's Day. I'm going to preach a sermon pretty soon. I've been writing on it, not ready yet, but I want to talk about this question about when we can eat the Lord's Supper. And is it all right to eat the Lord's Supper on Friday night at a wedding? Would that be all right? And if the answer is no, why not? What's wrong with that? I want to talk about that and, and about the Lord's Day and about the principles of eating the Lord's Supper. 
But the, but the answer to the question is we don't take it twice because that's not authorized in Scripture. What we have in the pattern is that the Christians got together and they ate the Lord's Supper. And you say, well, why do you offer it twice? Well, I would argue that, that that's not really what's happening. That's a misnomer because uh, we, we, don't, we don't eat the Lord's Supper twice. We don't all eat the Lord's Supper twice. What we do is an accommodation to people who can't be here in the, the morning part of our worship. And sometimes the reason is really very good. It's not uncommon for us to have husbands and wives who take turns caring for a sick person at home, and one comes in the morning and one comes in the evening. But the one who came in the evening didn't get to eat the Lord's Supper. And how shall we respond to that? Would we say, why, you know, we've offered that and so you can't have it. Well, that doesn't make any sense. This is an accommodation, and I believe it's a right one. Uh, What we should warn against is this idea that some may sometimes have that if I didn't come in the morning because I just chose not to be there, it's okay, I'll come in the evening and I'll eat the Lord's Supper and I've got all the boxes checked. Well, that's not right. It's it's interesting to me that that, uh, eating the Lord's Supper in the evening, if if you've forsaken the assembling in the morning, isn't going to do you a great deal of good. You, 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 uh, that accommodation is made for people who were unable to come in the morning time, and it's a kind. And you know, we we take the Lord's Supper sometimes, but to people who are sick at home, who haven't the ability to come out, they can't, and they maybe worship on Lord, live stream, and maybe they want the Lord's Supper brought to them, and somebody to pray with them, and maybe sing a song with them. What shall we say to that? Should we say we'll not do it? The answer is no. So this is, of course, this is an accommodation to them to help people who are not as strong as you and I are. All right. Number next. How shall a wife respond to a husband who demands she either do something she believes to be non-scriptural or to neglect something she believes to be a biblical responsibility? And, of course, this is a question that stems from uh, Ephesians chapter 5 or Colossians chapter 3, which we discussed this morning, Bill taught this morning. And, and so what you have in these passages are clear instructions. Verse 23 of Ephesians 5 says that uh, <clears throat> a wife is to be obedient to her own husband as unto the Lord in everything. Wow, that's comprehensive. It's, I, I made a comment in class that it's just Amazing when you study these verses, the degree to which he wanted wives to be submissive to their husbands. So is there an exception to that? I would argue that there is. And it's Ephesians, I mean, it's Acts 5 and 29. Acts 5 and 29 is what I read a few moments ago, go from Peter. And, and they were, Peter and John were being brought up on charges from these authority figures, the high priest, the captain of the temple, the chief priests told Peter and John to stop preaching Jesus. And what was Peter's response to these authorities? Sorry, we, sorry, not sorry. We, 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 we should obey God rather than men. And I would argue that's exactly how a a wife should be. I, I would encourage her to be gentle about it and kind and, and to say something such as, you know, I love you. And, and I believe the New Testament. And so I, I will always work every day to be submissive to you in our marriage. But my God comes first. Now, you know that. My God will always come first. Now, that can be very practical in some marriages because some husbands may want to involve themselves in entertainment, for example, that the wife just simply cannot do with a clear conscience. 
And she, she may say, for example, I know that this is a beautiful summer Sunday coming up, and I know you want to take the boat and go to the lake, but I can't go with you. If you want to go on Saturday, that'll be fine, but I can't go with you on Sunday because I'll be in worship to God. I love you, but I can't do that. I love God more than you, and I hope you'll go to heaven with me, but if you don't, I'm still going to go. <clears throat> Paul Owen said to me one day, uh, years ago, he said now, and I don't know where he got this, but I thought it was very good. And he so seldom says anything that's really good, so I, I remembered it. Uh, for, if you're listening to the recording, I'm just teasing, of course. But he said, we shouldn't be selfish about anything except our souls. But you better be selfish about your soul. Right? And don't be ashamed of that. All right, number next. What would you say to Christians that think birth control is a sin, especially if you're married, whether for medical reasons or for birth control. <clears throat> I would say this, because we all understand that there are natural means of birth control that do not involve any sort of drug, are not prohibited in Scripture. And uh, a couple who wants to somehow regulate the number of children they have may practice some sort <clears throat> Of, of, a, of a practice that would limit pregnancy and practice some birth control. I know of no scripture that would, that would be violated by doing that. Second, <clears throat> I want to, to place this in your heart. Sorry. <clears throat> Excuse me. That, that we need to avoid any kind of birth control that is an abortifacient. You've got to do that. I think it's, it's really interesting. You, you hear um, politicians today who are just really applauded because they're pro-life and they're anti-abortion. <clears throat> and we say, wow, that's just so good. And then they'll be, put this parenthetical thing, except in the case of rape or incest, right? Now, now look, I, I can't imagine the horror of carrying a baby that was conceived in such a way. However, and this is the big however, if you're pro-life, if you believe what the Bible says about the definition of murder, if you believe that murder is sinful, then the circumstance of the conception is really somewhat irrelevant to the fact that that's a human being, a living human being, and to deliberately choose to take the life of that baby is a sin against God. It's murder. It is simply murder. And, and so uh, an abortifacient is something that we should not ever use. Uh, and so please investigate that. Seek, seek that out. Find that out. And, um, oh, one more thing, because it's in the question. Drugs that are commonly used for birth control may sometimes be used for other medical issues. And I would suggest that it's not wrong unless it's sometimes used for a cover for promiscuity, then it would certainly, or something that would somehow inadvertently encourage promiscuity. And you can understand what I'm talking about there. All right, let's do one more, and then we will stop. Unless I want to go on to this one. We'll see. I'm not going to put you over time tonight. This this question was emailed to me, and um, the person is watching this discussion. It's in reference to telling jokes 
that contained religious content, sacrilege, crude jokes, or blasphemy. I have some family members and friends who claim to be Christians, but they do not see a thing wrong with these type jokes. They don't seem to have fear of or respect for God in this area. I cringe when they share memes and reels with this type of content. Many of them see me as a killjoy. And so what about this? Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 12. Matthew 12. I'm going to start in verse 22. Let's read several verses together because this will have broad application. It's a good question. Matthew chapter 12, beginning in verse 22. We're going to go down to 36. Then one was brought to him who was demon-possessed, blind and mute, and he healed him so that the blind and mute man both spoke and saw. And all the multitudes were amazed and said, Could this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, this is important, this fellow does not cast out demons except by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. Do you understand what they just did? Jesus performed a miracle and they attributed the power of that miracle to Satan. And Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation And every city or house divided against itself will not stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, that is those demons were part of the satanic hell. If Satan casts out Satan, he's divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they'll be your judges. Jesus was a tremendous logician. But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come to you. Or how else can one enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man, and then he will plunder his house? He who is not with me is against me. He who does not gather with me scatters abroad. Therefore I say to you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men, but the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven men. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him, either in this age or the age to come. We had a discussion about this recently. And briefly, I believe the passage means this, that a man may have rejected the truth of God during the Old Testament period. And he may have come on into the period in which John was baptizing. We talked about that last week. And suppose he rejected that. And then, and then you come into Christ and Christ dies and the church is established. And what if he rejects it then? The answer is that this is, these are the last days. I mean, the, the, the world may stand another 5,000, 20,000 years. I don't know. But, but it's called in Acts 2, the last days. That's the Christian age, the, the age of the church in, in which, uh, of which you're a member. And, and if you reject that, if you reject the truth that was brought by the Holy Spirit, in these, these last days, there's nothing else. There's nothing else to appeal to you. You're, you're cooked. You're done. You're finished. There's nothing, there's not going to be any more opportunities for you. And that's, that's what I believe what that means. But then this. I'm in verse 32 or 33. Let's do 33. Either make the tree good and its fruit good or else make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For a tree is known by its fruit. 
Oh, brood of vipers. You know what a viper is, don't you? I don't think that was a very gentle thing to say. You filthy snake. You brood of vipers. How can you, being evil, speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. What's he referencing? In particular, he's referencing this unthinkable thing to look at Jesus Christ and the power of heaven in healing a man and attributing that power to the, to the Beelzebub. 35, a good man out of the good treasury of his heart brings forth good things and an evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth evil things. But I say to you, this is sometimes a confusing verse. Let's see if we can shed some light on it. But I say to you that for every idle word men may speak, they will give account of it in the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. What's an idle word? When you, you, can, you look up the Greek and what you have is it means idle as in reference to no activity. It means leisure time. It means, and we have conversations like these all the time, where you just, around here in Alabama, we say you're just chewing the fat. You're just just having a just talking, talking about about things that are light and rather trivial, and and you might say that they're uh, connected more to leisure than to actually getting something done. And this says Jesus said that for every idle word that a man may speak, he'll give account of it in the day of judgment. And then he says that's going to be true about the good words or the bad words. Now I think this passage is directly attributable to the question that's been asked. And so when, I, when I'm posting something, you said that's probably mostly, well, sometimes, that's, that's idle words, right? Or maybe I'm, I'm with some friends and we're eating some lunch and I tell a crude joke or I tell a joke that somehow involves some blasphemy, got a little blasphemy woven in there where I speak against the things of God or make fun of or light of the things of God. Now, ladies and gentlemen, that is exactly what is being prohibited here by Jesus. Don't you do that. You, you may be having leisure talk, but what you come, what you come out with and what they came out with, because I think their argument might have been, okay, 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 don't get so stressed about this. We just ran this up the flagpole to see if anybody thought it had validity. Maybe that this, this power of Jesus is attributed to Beelzebub, but come on, okay, let's just drop the whole thing. No, wait a minute. No, no. You, you, you may trivialize that if you want to, but Jesus says, I'm not going to trivialize that. So the, the leisure talk is not what he's condemning. It's taking advantage of the fact that this is just common conversation. We were walking out to the barn, and so I said X, Y, Z. Don't you be blaspheming the name of God. Don't you be making fun of sacred things. We mustn't do it. Don't you be filthy in your language. Don't be filthy in your language. Don't do that. You say, well, it was just a joke. Don't be doing that. Even in leisure, I need to remember that I'm a Christian. And that is the point and that is the answer to this question. We hope you have enjoyed this lesson from God's Word, brought to us by Glenn Colley. If you have comments or questions, Glenn can be reached by email at colley at westhuntsville.org.